The college that I went to my freshman year required that all freshmen participate in life groups. And these groups served as a way for new students to get acclimated to college and develop community, things like that. Now, I don't remember everybody who was in that group, but I do remember it included two of my basketball teammates and then another guy who we will call Steve. And Steve would tell me and my teammates all of the time that he was, in fact, a basketball superstar. Countless times he told us how he had been offered some Division I scholarships at big universities like Michigan State, but he turned them down for reasons that he never shared with us. Humility, I guess, or something like that. We were skeptical, to say the least. But day after day, we heard about it. Yeah, if your coach doesn't call me up to play, one of these D1 schools might track me down. Day after day, he said this to us. And you know, Steve could talk a good game. He knew a lot about basketball. He knew the terms, knew the names of players and coaches. In fact, if you had heard but never met Steve, you may have thought that maybe he really was a hidden talent. But the proof is in the playing. No matter how good a game you talk, when you step on the court, there is no hiding things. And when we played with him, our suspicions were confirmed. He was a nice guy, but he was not a basketball player. And to be honest, there was this period of time in which I was just blown away by how firmly he held on to this idea that he was this sought-after athlete when that just clearly wasn't true. It didn't make sense to me. And then I started to wonder if he really believed it. You see, he couldn't fool people on the court. The proof was right there. And even though he may not have fooled us, I started to think that he may have fooled himself into believing the things that he said. Looking back, I wish that I had known how to help him or be a better friend to him or how to find better ways to speak the truth to him. And you know, it's sad, but there are many people in our world, in our country, and in our churches who profess to be followers of Jesus Christ, and, and they might know some Christian phrases or Bible verses. Uh, they can tell you about Paul and the disciples, maybe even Jesus. They have a lot of knowledge that might convince some who hear them talk but never meet them that they are, in fact, Christians. But the proof is in the living, and their lives show that this just isn't the case. You see, there are many people who have fooled themselves into thinking that they are saved, but they've put their hope in the wrong places. So how do we respond to them? How do we speak truth to them? How do we point them to Jesus Christ? My prayer is that the truths that we will see this morning together in Romans chapter 2, beginning in verse 17, will help us as we learn to identify God's people. So if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to turn there to Romans chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible with you, as always, I'd encourage you to use one of those Bibles under the seat in front of you. If you'd like to use one of those, you can turn to page 912. Page 912. Romans chapter 2. Last week when we were in the book of Romans, we saw Paul address the moralists, the, the self-proclaimed good people who, who are sure that they will earn their way into heaven by their good works. And today, 
Today we need to go a little further into the subject of those who are deceiving themselves. And as we do, I realize that some of us might say, Andrew, is Paul just beating a dead horse here? But is he? Is it possible that our churches are filled with people who have this false sense of eternal security, who have put their hope in all the wrong places, convinced that they are God's people, but in fact they are truly far from him? If so, then shouldn't Paul eagerly and thoroughly point out the error of their ways in the hope that they would turn to Jesus Christ and be saved? And shouldn't we do the same thing? Let's see what Paul had to say as he continued talking to the Roman believers and the Roman church in verse 17 of chapter 2. He said this. He said, Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and boast in God, if you know His will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then, who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Now let's stop right here for a few minutes. You can keep your place in Romans chapter 2. Paul now fully turns his attention to the Jews present in the church. And remember, God chose the nation of Israel to be the people through whom he would send his law and his prophets, through whom he would reveal his glory, and most of all, to be the people through whom the Savior of the world would come. And you know, the Jews, they were quite proud of these things. I mean, they had the law and the scriptures from the time of their youth, unlike the Gentiles. So the Jews became convinced that because of all of this, they, they were guides to the spiritually blind. They were a light to those stumbling in spiritual darkness. They were teachers of truth because they had knowledge. They were so confident in the things that they knew. They could recite the commandments to you. They could talk a good talk. But the proof is in the walk. And Paul says, you teach this, but do you live it? Sadly, there were Jews who knew the things to say and to do, but they didn't do those things. Or their obedience at most was superficial. Well, they preached against adultery, and maybe they didn't cheat on their spouse, but, but they committed adultery through lust in their hearts. And they dishonored their marriages. Now, they preached against stealing, and they didn't go and rob apple carts, but they were thieves in their own ways. They found loopholes in order to try and commit their disobedience, all while convincing themselves that they followed the truth because they knew the law. Ultimately, they were relying on their spiritual knowledge as proof of their salvation. Their assurance wasn't based on faith in Jesus, but in their knowledge about God and about the things that God had said. To them, this is what set them apart from the unbelievers. This is what gave them confidence that they were in good standing before God. But what's the point in having God's word and then not following it? 
And so Paul wasn't implying that spiritual knowledge is wrong or that it's bad. The problem is that they were relying on that knowledge and their superficial obedience as evidence of their salvation. But you know, the same way that knowledge of a sport doesn't make you an athlete, knowledge of Jesus in the Bible doesn't make you a Christian. Paul says, you know the Bible, but where's the proof that you've been changed by it? Knowledge can't save us. No, instead it should lead us to faith in Jesus, and then faith leads to a changed life. Those who are truly saved, they're not known by their knowledge, they're known by their actions. Now understand, as we saw last week, this doesn't mean that good works save us. No, it means that true followers of Jesus Christ can be identified by their loving and willing obedience to the Lord. They don't obey Jesus out of legalism or a desire to earn their way into heaven or to be holier than thou. No, it comes from a love for the one who saved them. Out of their love for Jesus, they pursue obedience to Jesus. When they sin, they are quick to run to Jesus for forgiveness. Now, sadly, by boasting in spiritual knowledge of the law, but failing to live by it, these Jews proved they hadn't been changed by the Savior. And Paul says they opened the door for unbelievers to blaspheme the name of God. We see that today, don't we? Uh, professing Christians go and live immoral and hypocritical lives, and the world looks at that and they say, why would I want any part of that? I mean, what good is this Jesus if you live just like me? You know, there are people in churches today who, like the Jews in Rome, have a knowledge of the Bible. And they're certain that because of this, they're saved. They know and they follow some of God's commands. You know what? They memorize John 3.16. So they must, they must be saved. So if if you call yourself a Christian, if you rely on the Bible, if you claim to know God and His will, the question is, do you prove it by your lifestyle? You tell others to live for Him, do you live for Him? Where's the proof of your salvation? The Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians 13 that we are to examine ourselves to see whether we are in the faith. So if you profess to be a follower of Jesus, do you see the ways Jesus has changed you since you made that profession of faith? Do you have a love for him, a desire to live for him? Are you grieved when you wander from him and stray into sin? There are a lot of people today who are relying on what's in their head and on their knowledge, and perhaps if they looked closely, they would see well, there's no fruit in their life bearing with repentance. They would see that they're relying on the wrong things, that they are finding security in knowledge and not in Jesus Christ. But one way that we identify God's people is that they obediently follow God's word out of a love for Jesus. But their hope isn't in what they know, it's in who they know. Their hope is found in Jesus Christ. Let me explain it this way. There's a story, this old story, of a, a jungle tribe that was given a sundial as a gift by an explorer. Oh, the tribe, they looked at that sundial with a lot of pride and admiration. And they wanted to, to treasure it. And they wanted to keep it safe. So they built a house over it, you know, to keep it out of the elements, the weather, the heat of the sun. But as you've already figured out, by doing this, the sundial didn't have any practical use. It became quite worthless, despite how much it was worth in their sight. 
And in a similar way, many people gain a head knowledge of God's word and they revere it in their minds, but never let the truth of it shine into their hearts and lead them to saving faith in a changed life. That knowledge can't save them any more than a covered sundial can tell time. The truth is that spiritual knowledge can't save us. Only Jesus can. And Paul had more to say. Look at verse 25. He said, circumcision has value if you observe the law. But if you break the law, you become as though you had not been circumcised. So then, if those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you, who, even though you have the written code and circumcision, are a lawbreaker. Hmm. Last week we talked about those who rely on their good works for salvation. You know, things like being a good neighbor and being kind and being generous, things like that. But then there are those who believe that a particular spiritual work can bring them the salvation that they seek. Well, for the Jews, that spiritual work and action was circumcision. God established circumcision in Abraham's day, and this act was an outward sign of God's covenant with the Jewish people. It was to serve as a personal reminder that they were set apart for him, that they were supposed to follow, obey, and serve him all their lives. Circumcision was always meant to be that, a sign, a symbol of who the Jews were supposed to be. But instead, many Jews started to think that circumcision wasn't just a sign pointing to the covenant. No, no, it was proof that they belonged to God. They elevated this act in the flesh as though it was enough to save them. So they referred to the unbelieving world as the uncircumcised. They began to see that as one of the primary things that determined whether or not someone could be accepted by God. Naturally, then, the Jews began to find their identity in circumcision and not faith in God. But they lost sight of the fact that God has always been after the heart of man, not the flesh of man. So it's really not a surprise that when the church began, this mindset came into the church. Jews started teaching that these Gentiles really want to be saved. they got to be circumcised. And even though the apostles and the elders made it clear early on that that wasn't the case, that those who are saved are saved by grace through faith. Despite that, there were still Jews elevating circumcision, finding in it their confidence of salvation. But Paul says that even a great spiritual act like circumcision it has no value for the one whose heart has not been changed by Jesus Christ. In other words, Paul is saying circumcision cannot save you. Now some of us may be thinking, that this really isn't a problem for us. We're not sure what the application would be in our lives. I mean, after all, today you'll be hard-pressed to find someone in the church that sees circumcision as necessary for salvation. No, instead, instead today, we find that many people have elevated baptism as the spiritual work that saves them. In fact, when I talk to those who want to be baptized, one question that I ask them is, does baptism save us? And over the years, I have found that more than 50% of those I ask that question to respond with a very confident, yes. And look, I don't share that to shame anyone who has said that in the past. And that's not why I ask people that question. I ask it to teach them what the Bible does say. In fact, the very 
fact that so many people believe that shows that this isn't being taught properly in places. Baptism is good. But Jesus commanded his followers to be baptized. But this spiritual act is a, an outward sign of what Jesus has already done in the believer's heart. It can't save. The Bible says that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. It doesn't mention baptism when it says that. In fact, if baptism saves, then, then it's a little strange that Jesus had his disciples baptized, but he didn't seem to do much of that himself when he was on earth. If baptism saves, then it's kind of strange that in his letter to the Corinthians, Paul said he was glad he didn't baptize a lot of them. If baptism saves, then did Jesus lie to the thief on the cross when he said, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise? Well, the thief put his faith in Jesus, but he never had the chance to be baptized. Or is it that many people today, like the Jews before us, have placed their hope and their identity in the wrong things? Many professing Christians are hoping that spiritual works, uh, like getting baptized or joining a church, that these things guarantee their salvation. But the truth of the matter is spiritual works can't save us. Only, only Jesus can do that. If you're here and you're relying on some sort of outward work like baptism, joining the church, something like these, understand they will always fall short when it comes to your salvation. They're good things. Circumcision was a good thing, but they're not saving things. And one way we can identify God's people is that they do obediently follow in the command to be baptized, but they don't put their hope in baptism. Their hope is found in Jesus Christ. But Paul had a little bit more that they needed to hear. Look at verse 28. He said, A person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, or circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. Now this, this would have been shocking to any of the Jews hearing this when Paul said that true Jews aren't those who are just outwardly Jewish. And to understand that, you need to, you need to know that the Jews, they wore their heritage as a badge of honor. I mean, for many of them, to be Jewish was to be the people of God. It was to be accepted by God. Well, here Paul is saying that your physical descent, just like the physical act of circumcision, doesn't make you a real child of God. In other words, he's saying that your heritage, your ancestry, your race, all these things cannot save you. In fact, in his letter to the Galatian church, Paul said that true children of Abraham are those who belong to Jesus by faith, not by ancestry. Jesus said something similar. John chapter 8, Jesus was talking to a crowd of unbelieving Jews, and he said that they weren't truly children of Abraham. Well, they didn't like that. But Jesus wasn't talking about their physical heritage. He was talking about their spiritual heritage. They didn't have the faith that Abraham did. By the way, that was evident in their actions. Jesus said they were children of the devil. And the point is that there were Jews who were relying on their title as a reason for their salvation. They thought the title of Jew was a guarantee that they were saved. 
We might think that that's silly, but there are many people today who are confident in their salvation because they walk around claiming the title of Christian. And they give them themselves that title because they have a general belief in God or they belong to a church or you know, they grew up in a Christian household. But true Christians are those who belong to Jesus by faith. You see, spiritual titles cannot save us. Only Jesus can. And one way we can identify God's people is that those who claim the title of Christian can give you the reason for their confidence that they are in the family of God. And that reason, that confidence, comes from the fact that the day came when they gave their life to Jesus Christ in faith. They went to him by faith in prayer for forgiveness. They gave their life to him. But those who have never called on the name of Jesus in faith, despite what title they give themselves, they are not true Christians. They are simply claiming the title in the hopes of receiving the benefits of it, like salvation. So how, how do we identify God's people? God's people are not merely those with a knowledge of the Bible or those who went through the motions of baptism, or those who claim the title of Christian. His people are the ones who gave their life to Jesus Christ. They put their faith in Him as Savior, and since then they see the ways that He is changing them. Their obedience to Jesus should be evident. They won't be perfect, but they'll love and strive to live for the Savior. Yes, they've obediently been baptized, but their hope isn't in baptism, it's in Jesus. And yes, they call themselves Christians, and their obedience to the Holy Spirit who lives within them makes that evident to their hearts and to the world around them that that is, in fact, the case. They are followers of Jesus Christ. You see, the truth this morning is that the people of Christ are the ones relying on Christ for their salvation. Those are the people who belong to God. The people of Christ are the ones relying on Christ and Christ alone for their salvation. They know and are quick to admit that Jesus is the only way to be saved. This is important for us, church, because when someone tells us that they are a Christian, we should ask what that means. We should be sure that that means they've given their life to Jesus. Because, you see, there are a lot of baptized people and people claiming the title of Christian in this life who are headed for an eternity separated from God. So church, never stop sharing the gospel. Never stop pointing people to the only way of salvation, and that is through faith in the Son of God. There is no other way. There is nothing we can do. No spiritual work, no special title we can give ourselves, no knowledge that can save us. Only, only Jesus can do that. So church, my encouragement to you today, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you've given your life to him, my encouragement to you is to keep sharing the gospel with others. There are people, I promise you, all around you in your life who need to hear the truth, that there is no other name under heaven by which they can be saved other than the name of Jesus. And if you are here and Jesus is not your Savior, you've never given your life to Him, you've never gone to Him for the forgiveness of your sins, please, please understand. I don't know what you might be relying on to get to heaven one day for eternal life. I don't know if you're relying on your good works. Now, I'm not down that you're a good person. It's just not going to save you. I don't know if you're relying on going to church. I think it's a good thing that you go to church. It's just not going to save you. I don't know what you might be relying on, but if you are not relying on faith in Jesus, you are relying on the wrong thing. 
And you need to understand that the Bible says that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You see, the Bible is very clear. Our sin, and we have all sinned. We've all done bad things. Our sin is separating us from God. And the just punishment for sin is to be separated forever from God in a place called hell when this life ends. And we can't make up for it. Can't make up for sin. Can't erase the things we've done. That's the bad news. The good news is that in his love for you and me and all of us sinners, God sent his son Jesus Christ to this earth. Jesus did the thing that we can't do. He lived a perfect life. And at the end of that life, Jesus died on the cross to take our place, our punishment, the wrath for what we have done. He was buried and then three days later powerfully rose from the dead, proving that he's no mere man. No, he's the son of God. He's the savior. He's exactly who he said he is. And right now, Jesus stands in heaven waiting to forgive you of all your sins, to give you eternal life to come and live within you and allow you to live and love in a way you've never lived and loved before. The question is, will you give your life to Jesus? And will you put your faith in him? If you have never done that before, we want you to know you can do it before you leave here today. Would you pray with me? Friend, if that's true for you, if Jesus isn't your Savior, please, please know that you can come and talk to me during this final invitation song. Please know you can go to the very back if you would like. You'll find Michael Giorgini, one of our deacons. He'll talk to you, and he'd love to pray with you. But if you're here and you're ready right now to give your life to Jesus, I don't want you to have to wait another moment. So, friend, I would encourage you to go to Jesus in prayer and admit to him that you know that you're a sinner. You've broken his commands. But did you know and believe that he died on the cross for your sins? and that he rose from the dead. Friend, give him your life, and I promise you, I promise you according to the truth of the Bible, he will save you, he'll forgive you, and he'll change you. Dear Heavenly Father, we are hopeless apart from you and apart from Christ. Yet so many people are trying, they're trying to earn their way to you by doing good things, by doing church things, by learning about you, and they just haven't put their faith in Jesus Christ. I pray that if that's true for anyone here right now, I pray that they wouldn't stop thinking about these things, that they wouldn't leave here today before they talk to someone about these truths. And I pray that ultimately they would give their life to Jesus Christ. And Father, for those of us who have done that, I pray that every day we would praise you for the salvation that you've freely given us. I pray that every day you would open our eyes to the people around us who don't know you and then help us to be bold and faithful to share the gospel with them. I pray that this community would be impacted by the gospel through the people here at First Baptist Church of Oxford. For not for the glory of this church, but for your glory. Father, we love you. But you proved long ago when you sent your son that you love us more. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.